Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you here today. You know, uh, when I stand up here to preach and I look out at a group this large, you know, I don't, I don't know where everybody is spiritually, but, um, but I assume that most people in here uh, are Christ followers and serious about their faith. I mean, after all, you're here at church on a Sunday morning when you could be home sleeping in the bed, but I assume that you're here because you want to connect with God. Another assumption I, I have when I look at a crowd like this is that most of us, when, when we're in a tight place or when things don't go exactly like you expect in your life or, or in the life of someone that you love or care about, most of us are going to pray and ask God uh, to change our circumstances to make things better. I, I think this is true for us whether we're a Christian or not. If you believe in, in, in a God and you think that God is a loving God, then you think if he cares about if he cares about me, then he should care about my, my circumstances. And so if my circumstances uh, spin out of control, we ask God to make things better. And, and that's right, and that's proper. I mean, First Peter 5, 7 says, cast your care upon him because he cares for you. So when you're sick, you pray for healing. Or when your company uh, goes belly up or is sold off and you lose your job, you pray for uh, a new job. At election time, we pray for our candidate to be elected. When we're pressed for time and we're running from one place to the next, we pray for a parking spot, which uh, Karen does that all the time, and God answers that prayer, I'm telling you. I mean, I've never seen anything like it in my life, but uh, we pray to make good decisions about what to do next. We pray for God to provide for us when we get behind. The focus of most of our prayers is that we're asking God to do something out there. Lord, Lord, change him, change her. Uh, change my kids, change my spouse, change my boss, change the people I work with, uh, uh, change my money problems, change my, uh, my health problems, change politics, change America. God, God, I need your help, and I, I need you to change this or that out there. And um, um, the focus, the priority of most of our prayers and our expectations of what God should do in answer to our prayers is most often it's out there somewhere. And that's why uh, that you and I can become very discouraged or disappointed with God because we pray and ask God to do things, to change things, to change our circumstances. And when our circumstances don't change, we can get disappointed or confused. It makes us wonder, did we skip a step or did we miss a step in the prayer formula somewhere? I mean, maybe I didn't pray hard enough, long enough. Maybe I didn't get enough people praying for me, you know, to get the prayer meter in heaven, you know, to finally get up here. We just, I was just one person short of getting it over the line here. Or maybe we're, we're even asking, we're not even asking for ourselves. Maybe we're praying for someone else and we think, God, if anybody deserves for you to answer that prayer and heal them or make them right or get them a job or whatever, that person, he, she deserves, uh, deserves you to move on their behalf. And so sometimes... You know, what happens is we pray and nothing, and nothing happens or, or, or things don't happen the way we hoped it would. We become discouraged and some people even get angry with God and some people get so angry with God they just chuck their faith. Um, I mean, we did everything we knew to do, but God just didn't come through. And uh, I think most of you know what I'm talking about. Um, so the question is, when God doesn't change your circumstances... When God doesn't answer your prayers when you wanted or how you wanted, then what do you do? Well, maybe there's another way to think about what God is up to in your life. Maybe there's another way that we should be praying, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. So take your Bibles, 
Turn to Ephesians chapter three. We'll get there in just a, mo a moment or two. By the way, if this is your first time at Fellowship Greenville, first time tuning in online, we are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us. We know you could be worshiping anywhere, and there are a lot of great churches in Greenville, but you came here this morning, and we're glad you're here. One of the things that we want you to know about us is that most Sunday mornings, uh, we are studying our way through whole books of the Bible, and right now we're studying our way through the book uh, of Ephesians. And uh, Ephesus was a city in the ancient world uh, in what today we would call Western Turkey. And about five or six years before this letter was written, the apostle Paul had come to this area to tell the people about Jesus. Now, Paul was a Jew, and the Jews considered themselves to be God's specially uh, chosen people. And technically speaking, according to the Old Testament, they were the Ephesians were Greeks or Gentiles, and in the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. The situation would be similar to what many, in Jew, many Jews and Palestinians feel uh, towards one another today. There's this in, intense hatred and hostility. But when Paul uh, came to town and stayed there about three years teaching the people about what God was up to in the world through uh, Jesus, through what he had done through Messiah Jesus, there were lots and lots of Gentiles who became Christians, became Christ followers. And I said last week, uh, we, we talked about this, but at the time the letter was written, these Ephesian Christians were very discouraged, very discouraged because Paul was in prison and he was in prison primarily because of his ministry to Gentiles. Paul was their leader, their spiritual father in the faith, and they could not understand why God would not miraculously deliver Paul the way he had done so many times in the past. And, and there's no doubt that they prayed for him, probably even organized special prayer meetings for him. They sent out texts and emails asking everybody to pray for him. But about four or five years uh, had gone by and there was still no answer. And Paul was still in this dark, dank, dingy Roman prison cell. Now, the odd thing about the whole thing is that Paul was not discouraged by his circumstances. The Ephesians were discouraged by it. And, and, and Paul, and we talked about this last week, Paul's perspective was very different from theirs. Paul was looking at the bigger picture of what God was up to in the world. Because you see, Paul ended up in jail because God had revealed a very special message to him. And, and God had given Paul a very special ministry, a ministry to Gentile people. And Paul's message to the Gentiles was basically because of Jesus' death on the cross, now Jews and Gentiles have equal access to God. They, they stand on equal footing before God. And now, as far as God was concerned, there are no longer two separate groups of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. There's just one new unified people, the church. It's like before Christ came, there were two rival teams, two rival teams. Each team is characterized by unwavering loyalty. Each team thinks that they have God's special blessing. I mean, both sides pray for God to let them win. And uh, fans on both sides think that they're better and they're superior to the other team. And because this has gone on for years, the contention between the two teams is very fierce. Now, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that before Christ came, there were two teams with two separate identities, and there was this wall of hostility between the two. 
but because of Jesus' death on the cross, the two teams have now become one team. Now there's one team, God's true team. Even though it looks like God's team is losing most of the time. I almost wish they would have gone 0-5 last night because that would have made my illustration even more powerful. So uh, I had to add the word almost all the time. But anyway, that's what Paul was preaching when he got arrested and thrown in prison, that all people can now come directly to God through Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. You, you know, uh, there, there, sometimes people think and act like Christianity excludes people from other backgrounds and cultures, and that's just not true. Christianity is very inclusive, maybe the very the most inclusive of all the world religions because all people can come to God through Christ. All people, regardless of the color of their skin or cultural differences or social status, all people groups can come to God by way of the cross and they all stand on equal ground before God because of the cross. And Paul has been explaining that, uh, take, la laboring to explain it since uh, chapter two, verse 12, and it goes all the way through chapter three, verse 13. And he's saying to them, look, do not be discouraged. I'm in prison because of what God has called me to do. I've been faithful to the ministry that God has given me. And even though it looks like God's team is losing, I'm right where God wants me. So don't worry about me. Everything is going exactly as God has planned. Now he says that straight out in, in chapter three, verse 13, where he says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory, which is your highest good. But that's not all that Paul wants for these Ephesians. He, he doesn't want them to be discouraged, but there's something even more significant than that, and that's what leads him to pray in verses 14 through 21. See, you see, for God to bring two groups of people together who have a long history of hatred and hostility towards one another, something has to change deep inside of each one of those members in that church. Something has to change inside, and that's exactly what Paul prays for, for here uh, in, in, this, in this great prayer to conclude chapter three. Look at verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the, knees to the Father. Now the question is, for what reason? Well, because of every, everything I just said about God bringing Jews and Gentiles together into one new humanity, into the church. There, if that's going to happen, Paul knows there has to be a deep work of heart change. So he stops to pray for them that they would really understand and experience the magnitude of what God has done. He prays that they would grasp the significance of what God is up to in the world in establishing the church. Now here's the main emphasis. Paul prays that they would experience deep down inside the incredible multidimensional love of God in Christ in this new community that God has brought about, the church. And that's what this prayer is all about. Let's read it. I'll put it up on screen. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, 
being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to really know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. Such a great prayer, and it's just dense with meaning and application. Now, the question is, what exactly is Paul praying for here? I mean, some people say, say he's praying for four things. Some people say he's praying for three things. Some people say he's praying for two things. Some people say he's praying for one thing. So which is it? Well, it seems clear that he's praying that his friends would be strengthened with power in their inner being, and he prays that they would come to understand the limitless love of Christ for all of God's people, and he prays that they would be filled up with all the fullness of God. But is that three things, or is that one thing? And I wrestled with this quite a bit, uh, and uh, from looking at the Greek grammar, I take it that he's praying for one thing. In the original language, this is all one sentence, and there are three that clauses. In the Greek, it's a henna clause, which delineates a, a, a kind of a separate thought, building on the thought that came before it. And, and so it's kind of like he says one thing in three different ways. So I take it, this is what he's praying. He's saying, this is the one idea. I want you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, which results in the limitless love of Christ being manifest in you and through you, which results in you being filled up with all the fullness of God. You follow me? The one idea is that we would be strengthened with power deep inside, in the inner core of our very being, through the Holy Spirit, and that will result in us coming to better understand and experience the limitless love of Christ which results in our being filled up with the fullness of God. One thing said three different ways. Now, interestingly enough, Paul, this is common for Paul. He does this all the time. In fact, right here, he talks about, he uses, he uses different metaphors and images and illustrations to say the same thing. Like right here, he talks about the inner person, your inner being, or, and the heart, which is a simply, essentially the same thing. He talks about being rooted which is how a tree remains strong, and he talks about being grounded, which is how a building remains strong, but the two word pictures there have one point. It's about strength, and at the end of chapter two, he talks about the church as a building, a dwelling place for God, and here he picks up that image again, and he applies it uh, personally when he talks about Christ dwelling in us by faith, and then he talks about the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. And he's trying to paint this huge word picture to help us understand how far God's love has gone to make us this new two people into one people church and making that a reality. And so there's this one idea, strengthened with power by the Spirit in your inner person, and then he fleshes that out with one thought building on another thought. So the idea is that they would not just know these things, but they would experience these things. Now, that's, we see that in the word know there and knowledge there in verse 19. Because the Greek word for know and knowledge is the word uh, that means experiential knowledge. God's created one new people in Christ. It's happened. 
but the Ephesians haven't really experienced it. They know it, but they haven't experienced it. So Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would work to strengthen their hearts so that what is true would be true in their daily life and in their church life. One more time, Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would work to strengthen their hearts so that what God says is true would be true in their daily lives. And this prayer is for God to do something in them, in them each personally, so that the church, their church, would put the glory of God's love on display in their divided world. You see, for there to be a change in us, there has to be a change in me. For there to be a change in here, there has to be a change in here. And that's what Paul's praying for. That rather than pride and prejudice and bigotry and hostility ruling the inner you, this prayer asks God to do a powerful work in us so that the empowering grace and love of Jesus come through us to others. That's what he's praying. He's praying that we what we need most is to experience what we already know, to experience what we already know. Now, when I was seven or eight years old, our family once a year would drive from our home in Melbourne, Florida, back to my parents' home uh, in Mount Airy, North Carolina, which is Mayberry, where Andy Griffith came from. But both sides of my grandparents lived there, and I was told on the long car trip from, from uh, Melbourne to Mount Airy, I was told that pretty much in no uncertain terms that I was to be pretty much the perfect child. And well, after a, a, a couple days of being there and not having a whole lot to do, uh, I became rather rambunctious running, you know, like running in and out of the house, screen doors slamming behind me, pilfering through closets and drawers looking for hidden treasures. And my dad had finally had enough of it and, and he was sitting on the front porch and that's where my mother and brother, uh, my uh, his mother and his brother and all my cousins would hang out talking to each other. And they would talk mostly about how we got from Melbourne to Mount Airy, like all the roads that we took. This was before interstates. And so that was the topic of conversation day after day after day. And so anyway, I, you know, I, I, I did, after I heard that once, I didn't really care about it. And so I, I was running and rambunctious and doing all this stuff. And I ran past my dad and he grabbed my arm and he said, bedroom. And I knew I was in for it. And so as we headed into the house, my dear sweet grandmother looked at my father and said, Franklin, don't be hard on that boy. Well, about 20 years passed and my parents were visiting in our home and Chad was acting up and he was rambunctious, you know, excited about seeing him and everything. But, and he got a little bit out of hand. So I finally said, Chad, bedroom. And my dad looked at me as we were walking out. He said, son, don't be too hard on that boy. <laughs> and uh, see, for that, that 20 years, I thought I understood what happened back there on my grandmother's for, front porch. But as those words came back to me, now I was experiencing a fullness of understanding. I, I was experiencing those words as a father. And in this prayer, Paul wants these Ephesians and us to know in our experience the amazing reality of God's love that has brought all people together in Christ, all of God's people together in Christ. And so he prays for God to do something in them 
so that God's uniting love and Christ's peacemaking, barrier-breaking love would be a reality through them in the church. Now, let me just ask, let's just pause right here. Let me ask you a question. How much do you know compared to what, to how much you experience? How much do you know compared to how much you experience? I mean, when you think about how much you know about God, how much you know about the Bible and theology and all that kind of thing, how much of that knowledge are you actually experiencing in your daily life? Now, I tell you, this question really worked on me this week, and I, uh, I have to confess, I, I know a whole lot more than I experience. Like, I, I know God loves me, but sometimes I feel better about myself after I buy something new. Anybody? <laughs> uh, I know that contentment is a Christ-like quality, but I give in to wanting more and wanting different far too often. I know that my words ought to be seasoned with grace, but sometimes I can say some pretty awful, hurtful things. I know that pride gets in the way of relationships, but when I think I'm right and I, I feel like I have a right to set things right, well, sometimes my temper gets the best of me. I know that God wants Christians to extend grace and live together in peace, but I also think there are extenuating circumstances that allow for exceptions. I know God wants me to embrace other Christians who are different from me, but most of the time I opt to hang out with people just like me. I know that unity in the church is a high priority on God's priority list. The question is, is it as high a priority on our list? You see, there's a huge disconnect between what we believe to be true and what we experience as true in our daily lives. A huge disconnect between what we believe to be true and what we experience as true in our, our daily lives. And you know what? It doesn't seem to bother us. We seem to be perfectly content to learn more and apply less, as if knowing Bible facts is what it's all about. But as long as my inner person is ruled by a spirit that allows for jealousy and judgmentalism and partiality and pride and prejudice and cutting myself off from people that God loves and Christ died to save, then, then I'm not going to experience the abundant life that Jesus promised me, and God's not going to be able to put his love and grace on display through me in his church. You see, we desperately need God's empowering grace, working in our inner being, in our innermost self to make that possible. And only the work of the Holy Spirit strengthening the inner me with power can make experiential knowledge possible. The big idea in this prayer, Paul is praying that we would be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit and our innermost self. And this prayer gets at this disconnect problem. And what we see here is that the only way to know God's truth and experience it is through prayer, is by asking God to do this deep work in us. Now, when I began the message, I talked about like certain assumptions that I have when I stand up here, and Paul had some assumptions as well. In fact, I'm going to highlight two of them that I, that I think was in the back of his mind. The first assumption Paul has is that Christian life is not automatic. There's no such thing as instant maturity. 
New life comes from God as a gift, but the new life we receive is just the beginning. And there's a whole lifetime of growing to understand all that God has done for us in Christ. And, and we, we see this in the very things for which Paul prays. Now, follow me here. Paul assumes that his readers are Christ followers. They're Christians. And in a very real sense, he prays for them to have what they already have. He prays for them to have what they already have. You catch that? Um, For example, these people are Christians, and they already have the Spirit's power working in their innermost self. They already have that. Romans 8, 9, for one, tells us that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not a Christian. So if they already have it, why is he praying for it? Also, because they put their faith in Christ, Christ is already dwelling in their heart by faith. Other scriptures make it abundantly clear that that Christ comes to live in us by faith at the moment of salvation. And also at the moment of salvation, they came to know the limitless love of Christ through the cross of Christ. I mean, you can't really put your faith in the real Jesus if you don't believe that God demonstrated his great love for us on the cross. And also at the moment of salvation, we're put into the church which Paul says in chapter one, verse 23, that the church is filled with all the fullness of God, which that's exactly what he's praying for us here. So why is he praying for them to be filled up with what they're already filled with? Why is he praying for them to get what they already have? Well, Karen and I built a couple of homes, or I should say Karen has built those homes. I pretty much just showed up and swept after, you know, I was the cleanup crew, but she actually worked with the subcontractors and bought and, and built two houses of ours. And it's always amazing to me that when you finish building a house, you know, you close on it, and, and then moving day comes, you, you take all your stuff and you, you move all your stuff into this bare house because basically a house is simply, you know, a foundation and rooms and floors and walls and ceilings. But when you move in and you begin unpacking and arranging your furniture, you, 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 you do that and sometimes you buy new furniture and, and you plant trees and shrubs and flowers and, and, and after a while as, you're, as you continue to live in that home, that house, it begins to feel like a home. I was talking with somebody a while back who had moved into a house that was like a fixer-upper, and same idea. You move into that whole old house with bare floors and walls and ceilings, but you got something else in mind, so after you move in, like you start to work. Uh, So you repaint walls and doors, and maybe you have to pull up old, stinky, messy carpet, and uh, you tear out cabinets and put in new cabinets, or you paint those old cabinets. Uh, sometimes you have to put in a whole new heat and air system. Sometimes the electrical system needs work. Sometimes you have to address foundation issues. You might even tear out walls to make rooms bigger or make them different. You know, you're making this, making this yours. But eventually what you do is you settle down and you settle in, and that old house feels like a home. And the point is, when you move into a new house, it's your house, but it takes time to make that house a home. Now, that is true. The same thing is true of the Christian life. Even though Jesus, through his spirit, has taken up residence in you, it takes a while for him to settle in and make your heart feel like his home. 
You've got a new heart in terms of having a new landlord, but pulling up the old carpet of self-centeredness and tearing out walls of pride takes time. So the first assumption, the inner work of the Holy Spirit is not automatic. The Spirit's work is an ongoing renovation project. That's the first assumption I think he makes. And that's why he's praying this prayer for them. Uh, he, he's, he prays for them to become who they already are. He prays that they would experience what they've already been given. Now, the second assumption I see in Paul's prayer is that we need to refocus the priority of our prayers because you notice he didn't, he didn't pray for any circumstances. He didn't even pray for them not to be discouraged. He prayed that God would do something in them. So uh, we need to refocus the priority of our prayers how so? From asking God to change our circumstances to asking the Holy Spirit to change us. What we need to experience more than anything else is God's power at work in us. Now, when we think of power, we think of mountain-moving power. We th when we think of power, we think about what Paul said back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, when he said, we've got the power that raised Christ from the dead living in us. And we're like, woohoo, we got that power. I got the power, you know. I mean, that's incredible. But what does that mean? What does it mean? Most often, when we think of having the resurrection power of Jesus living in us, we want it to mean, we hope it means, the power to accomplish great things like the power to heal or, or pray for healing and have healing happen or the power to stay in control of our lives by praying powerful prayers and seeing them answered the way we ask. We think of this great power that God has made possible as something that we can use to change the impossible circumstances in, 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 in our lives, power to change things out there. And God does that. He does that sometimes. But that's not what this prayer is talking about. That's not what this prayer is talking about. That's taking the prayer out of context. No, Paul is praying for the power of heart change. He's praying for the power of life-transforming power. I love how D.A. Carson puts it. D.A. Carson, uh, author, theologian, puts it this way. He says, the power Paul prays for us here is the power to be holy, the power to think and act and walk and talk in ways that are pleasing to Christ, the power to strengthen moral resolve, the power to endure difficult circumstances, the power to walk in, a, in, in gratitude with God, the power to be humble, the power to be patient and kind, the power to be obedient and trusting, the power to grow in conformity to Christ. That's what this prayer is about. And I tell you, there is no more important prayer for us to pray for ourselves and others than this prayer right here and all of Paul's prayers for that matter. You know why? Why is this so important? Because if you're praying to be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit in your inner being, deep in your heart, deep down in the control center of your mind and will and emotions, if you're praying that and God is working all these Christ-like character qualities in you, then whatever you face out there, you know what? You'll be okay. You'll be solid. You'll be strong. You'll be confident. You'll be calm in here. You see that? Now, when people, when people ask me, hey, Charlie, how can I be praying for you? I almost always give them the same answer. And I'm talking about for 30 years, I've almost always given them the same answer. Years ago, 
I mean, like, like I said, 30 years ago, someone gave me a track and they thought this track was funny because it had my name in it. They, and so they kind of gave it to me as a joke, but this was what the track, this is the track, Lord Bless Charles. And they thought it was funny because my name is Charles, you know, so, and, and, but I'll tell you, this is one of the best small little gifts that I was ever given. It, it actually became a life-shaping thing for me because this track is about how we should be praying the prayers of Scripture for ourselves and others. And the prayer in this track comes from Paul's prayer for the Colossian Christians, found in Colossians 1, 9 through 11. A prayer very similar to this one. Here's Colossians 1, 9 through 11. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience with joy. You see, using Colossians 1, 9 through 11, this old track encourages us to pray through each of those phrases. So do you see why I ask everybody to pray this prayer for me? Because if God answers this prayer in me, then I can face anything out there. If I'm growing in the knowledge of God's will, growing in the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives, if the Spirit empowers me to live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way, if, 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 if I'm someone who is bearing fruit, strengthened with power, then I'll have the ability to endure whatever unsettling circumstance comes my way. And, 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 and I, I can do that. I can endure it with joy, knowing that God is in control and that Jesus loves me more than I can ever imagine. I will be okay. I'm telling you, we need to refocus the way we pray. The priority of our prayers should first be on what we desperately need for God to do in here and then pray and ask God for the help we need and ask him to change things out there. I'm talking about reversing the order. I'm not saying don't ever pray for your circumstances to change. I wouldn't know. That's crazy. Now, why do we do this? Because, one more time, if the Spirit of God is changing me from the inside out, then I'll have the power to handle any circumstances. Now, here's the key. The key to experiencing the life-changing power of God in your innermost being, the key is experiencing the limitless, three-dimensional love of Christ in your relationships. The key to experiencing the life-changing power of God in here is experiencing the limitless, three-dimensional love of Christ in your relationships. You see, God's love is complex and multifaceted, and it is beyond our understanding. You see that? Look at verse 19 where Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. <laughs> is that crazy or what? He prays for us to know what we cannot know, or maybe to pray for what, we can't, what cannot be fully known. It's kind of a paradox. Now, why can't it be fully known? Because it's limitless. Back up to verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in Christ's agape, unconditional love, would know experientially, along with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
of the love of Christ which is beyond knowing. <laughs> now I call this the 3D or three-dimensional uh, love of Christ. And here's how I picture it. You, got, you, this, you can't do it on a two-dimensional plane. You have to do it on a three-dimensional plane. Uh, so, you, so you can't understand width and length and height and depth unless you see them like this. Now, the width in this diagram, notice it has no beginning and no end. It's as far as the east is from the west. No end. And the length, same thing. Length and width are limitless. Now, the height is limitless as well, but what Paul is talking about is this love extends to the highest heaven. And the depth extends from the highest heaven to the earth. So this X, Y, Z axis of the love of Christ is limitless. And Paul says, I am praying that you will know in your daily lives how wide, how long, how high, how deep the love of Jesus is for you and for all of God's church. He's praying that for Jesus and his love to be more real to us than any other relationship parent, child, friend, spouse. He, he's praying that Christ's approval, Christ's love, Christ's opinion, what Jesus says about you becomes more assuring, more sweet, more comforting, more inspiring, more real than anything that you could receive from a parent or a spouse or a child or a friend. You see, right now, you say, well, I know God loves me, but this person criticized me, and I'm devastated by it. And that's because you know the love of Christ, but you don't know it deep, deep down at the core of your being. I'm not saying that you wouldn't be affected by somebody criticizing you. I'm just saying it wouldn't take you apart and take you down. Now, I agree with Tim Keller that the only way to make all this make sense is to see the limitless, three-dimensional love of Christ in the gospel in the gospel. Now, I, I want to kind of walk you through something. This is a meditation exercise. Paul invites us to think out, to meditate on this 3D love of Christ that's come to us in the gospel. And I, I'm, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying that Paul had all of it, this in mind, but he had something in mind because he, he uses the phrase, the love of Christ, and then he comes back around and he talks about how long and how wide and how high and how deep the love of Christ. So he expands the simple statement into something much, much bigger. So think with me. How wide is the love of Christ? Now Paul may be thinking of the great truth in Revelation 5 where it says, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every family, every tongue, every people, every nation. And in verse 11 it says, and the number of all those people was 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands, a multitude no man can number. In other words, the width of Christ's love is so wide that it doesn't matter who you are or what, who your people are. It doesn't matter what nation, what tribe, what race, what social class you're from. As far as is the east is from the west, you are welcome in the kingdom of God. Now, it also means that there are no people who are impossible to reach. You ever looked at somebody and said, that person will never trust Christ? I mean, I have to, 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 for the good, you know, to my shame. The, if you understand how wide the love of Christ is, you, you'll, you'll never say, that person cannot be reached. 
You need to be strengthened with power in your inner being until the width of Christ's love changes you and you're no longer hopeless about anybody. You're no longer prejudiced towards anybody and there's no trace of racism or class superiority about you. Christ's love is wide and inclusive. How long is the love of God? What is its length? Okay, first of all, think of God's love for you stretching from before time began all the way until time as we know it ends. No, 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 better, better than that, better than that. Think of how God's love stretches from eternity past to eternity future. It is limitless and as God's chosen one, there is no beginning and no end to God's love for you. And lay on top of that how God's infinite Love impacts your daily life. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus says to you, I will never, 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 ever leave you or forsake you. Now, there's a doctrine that some people don't like, so I'm not even gonna say it out loud, but I'll just call it the doctrine of the length of God's love. And that is that once God gets a hold on you, once God gets a hold of you, he never lets you go. Never. You are secure for all eternity. He, Jesus says, my own know me, my sheep know my voice. They come to me and no one can pluck them out of my hand. The length of God's love, God says it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how far you, try, you run to get away from me, you can't outrun me. My love is longer than your faithlessness, my love is longer than your unfaithfulness, my love is longer, my grace is greater than all your sin. So it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you run. You're never out of my reach. I will not let you go. How deep is the love of Christ? What do you think that means? Now, I'm just conjecturing. I'm just meditating on it myself. But I think if I was looking in Paul's CBR journal, and he was writing about this, I think he might be thinking about how far Jesus descended in order to demonstrate his love towards us. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus, though he was equal to God, did not hold on to equality of God, with God, but he emptied himself of his God powers and he came from heaven to earth and became a human just like us. And not just a human like us, a servant. But the real depth was not just that Jesus came from the highest heaven to earth, but once he got here, he was willing to go to the cross. You ever wonder why Jesus sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and why he was, a, he was so anxious and afraid that he said, God, you know, if there's any other way that we can accomplish what we need to accomplish here without going to, to the cross, let's do that. I know we've planned this in eternity past, but is there, if there's any way that we can bypass this, let's, put that, let's, do, let's do that. What was going on? Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus sweat blood, the Father was giving Jesus a foretaste of what he was gonna experience on the cross, a foretaste of the aloneness that he would feel, a foretaste of the depth of the emptiness he would feel when he hung on that cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there in the garden, knowing what was coming, the deep, deep love of Jesus, he submitted to the Father's will not my will, but thy will be done. And he went as far down as he possibly could go. And that's the depth of God's love for you. So look, whenever you feel sorry for yourself, 
whenever you're dealing with self-pity, you need to pray, God, strengthen me by the power of your spirit in my inner being so I might know the depth of your love for me. That's how you conquer self-pity. Just like the width of God's love gets rid of prejudice and superiority, just like the length of God's love gets rid of the idea that God will give up on you and cast you aside, grasping how far Jesus was willing to go and laying down his life for you gets rid of self-pity. And then finally, how high is God's love for you? Again, this is just a meditation exercise. These are all suggestions, but this, th- this just really grips me. This may very well be what Paul had in mind. The height of Jesus' love has to do with where he wants to take us. We're told in 1 John 3, dear friends, we are the children of God, but, but what we will be has not yet been made known. But we, we do know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. For we'll see him as he really is and we'll be with him forever. Now think about this. When you are in love, you wanna be with the one you love. So if say you're watching a movie but the one you love isn't there with you, you don't enjoy the movie as much as you, you could if, 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 if you're brought, you, you know, if the one you love was there. Like I'm, I, I'm, I'm there and I'm like, man, I wish Karen was here to see this with me. Your joy is made more full if you can share the experience with the person you love. Now, let's say you have to travel by yourself to a new place and it's really cool, or maybe you're listening to great music or you're watching a great game. It's just not as much fun without the one you love. Now, <clears throat> believe it or not, that must be a dim reflection of the love that Christ has for us. Jesus wants us to enjoy what he is enjoying. He wants us to be where he is. So what do you think he's enjoying right now? What kind of glory do, does he enjoy? What, what, what is this exalted state that he is experiencing and enjoying? Well, we have no idea. But what we do know is that he wants to share it with us. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, the glory I had before the foundation of the world with you, I want my disciples to know it too. I want them to be where I am. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's what I think of when I think about the height of God's love that Jesus wants to take me to where he is and be with him and experience eternity with him. The question is, how does the fact that Jesus' love is is greater than you can ever possibly imagine, how does that love work its way into your daily life experiences? How does the love of Christ conquer self-pity, conquer your prejudice, conquer your pride, your discouragement with yourself? With thinking that God's given up on you and cast you aside. You see, you see, we, we got to refocus the priority of our prayers. We got to refocus and, and begin asking God to do this deep, deep work of heart change in us. And you pray that God would strengthen you with power so that you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, which is beyond knowing. Now, let me ask you, do you pray this way? 
How often do you pray this way? Percentage-wise, how much of your prayer life is focused out there compared to wanting God to see God do something in here? Like when you find yourself in a difficult situation, a discouraging situation, do you pray more about what God, what you want God to do in you, or do you pray more about God changing your circumstances? When you find yourself at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, do you immediately think, God, I'm feeling angry, hurt, left out, put down, criticized, whatever. You feel that way, do you pray, Holy Spirit, strengthen me deep, deep down in my inner being so I'll respond in this situation like Jesus would if he was in my situation? Do you pray, Lord Jesus, be at home in me, live your life through me? so I can extend your grace to other people. See, the focus of our prayers needs to change from God change my circumstances to God change me. Now hear me, I'm not saying we should stop praying about things out there. Of course, yes, we are to cast our cares on him for he cares for us. We're to pray, we can continue to pray your prayer list, But the focus of our prayer, the priority of our prayers needs to be in asking God to do a deep work, a deep transforming work in our hearts. Listen, and even the closing doxology makes this point. The little benediction at the end. Look at verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. Stop. Now see, here here we are again. Most of the time we claim this verse when we want God to change our circumstances. When we're tempted to say, man, this thing is so big, it is so complex that uh, it's impossible. And then, you know, you say that in a a group, you know, your community group, and somebody says, well, brother, sister, you you know God is able to do far more beyond what, um, able to do far more than what you can ever think or imagine. So just have faith. Now, that's true. It is absolutely true. God is is capable and able and does sometimes do things far beyond what we can ask or think. That's just not what this verse is saying. That's not what this verse is saying. Look at it, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, look at it, according to the power that works out there. No, no, the power that works within us. You see where the prayer is focused, not out there, but in here. You see how the whole thing ties together. Okay, so about out of time, what's the application? One point, it's a one point, very simple application. Pray this prayer. (laughs) Use this prayer as training wheels. Pray this prayer, pray this prayer for yourself. Pray this prayer for others. Pray this prayer for this church. Pray this prayer. Paraphrase it. Put it in your own words. Personalize it. Prioritize it. And let's do it now. Heavenly Father, strengthen us by your spirit with power in the deepest part of our innermost selves that Christ would live his life in us and through us so that the limitless love of Christ will fill us and flow out of us to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially to those who are different from us, who are not like us, so that together we will put the greatness and goodness 
of your love on display in this divided world in which we live. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.